I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is my own dermatologist and incredible skin expert, Dr. Angeli Marto, founder of Self London. She is a leading consultant dermatologist and author of best-selling book, The Skincare Bible, which has been translated into 12 languages. Her passion and determination stem from her own lifelong issues with skin, which have given her a unique insight into the importance of nutrition, physical activity, and mental health. This inspired her to set up her first ever owned clinic, South London, which we are going to talk about, which is a clinic directed towards empowering people of all ages with the tools they need to take control of their skin and well-being and make a difference in their lives. And as I said at the start, Angeli and I have worked together on my own skin journey and it's been such a pleasure having her as my dermatologist. So I'm going to kick off by saying that um, and also saying that we were chatting before we came on that we were going to do a broad skin chat and then I said, actually, I think let's let's narrow it down and let's talk about the thing that people keep asking me about, which is Accutane. Um, so, Angeli, welcome first. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And I thought we could kick off by really just discussing uh, from a very broad perspective, I'm calling it um, Accutane, but obviously also known as isotretinoin and other names as well. And I wondered if you could just describe in layman's terms what Accutane is. I will probably refer to it as isotretinoin because that's the actual proper drug name. It's colloquially known as Roaccutane in the UK and Accutane in North America. But essentially, the drug is super high doses of vitamin A. So it is a retinoid drug. And what these really high doses of vitamin A do is they have a really powerful effect on the oil glands in the skin. So these high doses will shrink down the size of your oil glands, which means you produce less oil. If you produce less oil, your pores don't get blocked. And if your pores don't get blocked, then bacteria, which naturally live on your skin surface and form part of your skin's microbiome, can't act on those to create deeper spots or acne. So that's, in a nutshell, how the drug itself works. You know, I remember when we had our first consultation, you were so great at explaining that to me because I think a lot of people just sort of hear it as a as a drug name and don't really know exactly what it is. So I think it's great to have a real understanding of what it is and how it works. And then I think when it comes to Rakutane being prescribed, actually, do you know what? Let me let me call it isotretinoin as well. Then we could be on the same page. Sure. When it comes to isotretinoin being prescribed, what does a typical candidate look like? Some, you know, when you see people in, in clinic, what is someone usually presenting with, which would lead you to then prescribe um, isotretinoin? Yeah. So in the UK, isotretinoin is a dermatologist only prescription drug. So it's not something that you would be able to get from primary care or your GP. So the average person that I would say, and you know, no one's average, but I guess your ideal demographical candidate for it would be somebody who has got either very severe acne. So there's lots of spots. They're very deep. They're very cystic. They last for several weeks at a time. They're very painful. Or acne, which is scarring. So leaving red marks or indentations on the skin. Acne, which is not responding to other treatments. So let's assume you've been on the pill or you've had multiple courses of antibiotics. You've had lots of creams, lotions, potions. None of those things are helping. And finally, if acne is affecting your mental health, so it's affecting your day-to-day -day and your ability to do all the things that you want to be able to do, all of those are good reasons as to why you may be prescribed the medication. And when we first met and we discussed, you know, that I was a potential um, patient for isotretinoin or qualifying to take isotretinoin, there are obviously some things that can stop someone from being 
um, able to take the medication. Could you maybe explain the contraindications that someone might kind of come across if they they can't actually get uh, prescribed Rakuten? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that I would say is it actually comes down to patient choice for a start. There are many people that don't want to take the drug. And I do think it's important that as a dermatologist, our job is not to push medication on people. It's to be able to give you the pros and the cons in a non-emotional way so people can make the best decision for themselves. But then there are medical reasons as well that you may not want somebody to take the medication. So if you're planning on pregnancy or if you're pregnant or you're best breastfeeding, the drug is contraindicated. If there are any issues potentially with the liver, we have to check baseline liver function is normal. There's no inflammation of the liver. That would be another reason we would choose not to prescribe it. And then another area that I tend to take quite seriously is if there's any issue of severe mental health illness in the patient or the family, you may want to recommend that they get reviewed first by a psychologist or a psychiatrist to assess suitability for the medication. But they're usually the common reasons that we tend to encounter. And I think, you know, you said there that patient choice is, is the number one thing. And I just, this isn't me saying that everyone should come and see you as a, as a, as a patient, although I really hope that people do. But um one thing that I really valued in our first session was that I came to you saying, I think I want to take isotretinoin. And actually the thing that you did, which I found so helpful, was you didn't just say, okay, yes, here's a prescription. You said, well, let's talk about all of your options. Yeah. And really going through those and really understanding why each one might be right and potentially not right. And really laying out on the table all of the options that are available to me for the place that I presented. And, and I'll, you know, for full disclosure, my case was acne that didn't respond to any other treatment and then also acne that was causing me real kind of discomfort in myself and I was very incredibly self-conscious of it. So I think that that's such an important part of that communication with a practitioner, with a dermatologist, you know, say someone is listening to this and thinking that that might be the route to really go in with a broad and open mind and just kind of listen to their dermatologist, give them hopefully different choices and it really come down to that personal perspective and just you know I, I sat there and weighed up all my options and realized that for me personally isotretinoin was the route that I wanted to go down but that there were options if that wasn't as well and I think that's really good to know. I agree and I think the other thing is setting realistic expectations as well because sometimes I could see somebody and they may have very severe acne and when I say severe we're talking medical definition of severe lots and lots of inflammatory lesions on their skin but they may not want to take the medication. And that's totally reasonable to say, I don't want to take that drug. What are my other options? But then it's also my job to say, these are your other options. It may be less effective, but if this is what you want to try first, you do so. Rather than set up this expectation of the other options may or may not work as well. So I think that's where that patient education part of it is so key. So you can make the right decision for yourself. And on that point, let's dig into that a little bit. The efficacy of, of isotretinoin is, is pretty good. Could you talk about how well it works versus a couple of other options that people might know? I mean, I know when we had that conversation and you were very realistic about what each option might look like in terms of results. Could you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So with isotretinoin, it is the most effective medication that we have for acne. So despite the bad press that it gets, and I'm sure we will come on to talk about that later, the drug is still around because it works. The drug has been around since the early 1980s. So we've got nearly 40 odd years of safety data on the medication. We know short, mid and long term what to expect, what those side effects are. So from a practical point of view, you know, I always think with people when they start the medication, the things that you need to be aware of is, yes, there are side effects. But with regards to those side effects, a lot of those can be managed 
provided you get the right information. And I think the other thing is a lot of people will say, oh, but I've done a course before or I've, I've been on it before or I know people that it hasn't worked for and it's come back. And I think what I would say there is when it comes to actually taking the medication, target dosing of the medication is really important. And that target dosing is based on an individual's body weight. And if you do not hit that target dose that you need for your weight, there is a chance that it will come back. And that chance is much, much higher of recurrence than if you get to the point that you need to. So often I find people that may have done a course or two in the past, they come and see me and say, it worked, but then it came back again. But when I start digging into their history and their story a little bit more, what I find out is they never got anywhere near taking their target in the first place. So it's not surprising that it came back in the future. That's really good to know. There are other sort of prerequisites to taking isotretinoin. One of those is the need for contraception, blood tests. Could you talk through what those look like? So the data has changed over the years. So if you had taken isotretinoin a decade ago or two decades ago, the monitoring that we do is slightly different now. And it's actually, in some ways, the blood tests are a little bit more relaxed than what they used to be. But generally speaking, what I and the majority of practitioners will do, and there will be minor variations depending on who you see in the UK, but what you would do is get a blood test done before you start at baseline. And that blood test normally looks at your blood count, checks your liver, your kidneys are working properly. We also keep an eye on the fats in your blood, so your cholesterol, your lipids. And then we have to do a pregnancy test on every female patient that we have. We also then do a blood test at the end of the first month and at the end of the second month of treatment. So we're usually talking three blood tests if things go to plan and there are no problems over a six-month course, which is usually about average if people tend to take a higher dose of the medication. Now, prior to that, the blood tests used to be much more frequent. And I certainly remember years ago when I took it, I was having blood tests nearly every month. And the data now shows that's probably a little bit of overkill in that way. Pregnancy tests on female patients are essential, um, and that is NHS or private guidelines. We require pregnancy tests monthly. We have to document them on the prescription monthly, or the pharmacy will not issue the drugs. And actually, to that point, Angeli, um, I wanted to talk about my personal situation. I'm very happy to be open about this, but going on to contraception wasn't something that I wanted to do. And, and I discussed that openly with you. And we did go down a slightly different route. And I wondered if you could maybe explain how that might work for someone who is also in a similar position to me and doesn't want to go on to contraception and what therefore their treatment plan might look like. Yeah, I think this is an interesting question, actually. And again, this is where there will be variation, um, particularly NHS and privately, and between practitioner to practitioner as well. I see a lot of women that don't want to go on hormonal contraception, can't go on hormonal contraception, and I certainly don't force the issue. So we are able to do something called opt you out of the pregnancy prevention program. So essentially a waiver to say, you're an adult, you understand the risks, the medication, if you were to go on it, has the potential to damage an unborn baby. So, you know, you take as many precautions as you can, barrier methods where necessary. But the point is there are ways and means around that if contraception isn't appropriate or people don't want to take it. Absolutely. That's really, really good to know. Because I think a lot of people just assume that they have to go back onto contraception. That can actually sometimes stop them from then going down the route of isotretinoin. We've talked about side effects. So say someone starts taking 
isotretinoin, we know that there are some really common side effects that people experience. Could you talk me through the main ones? I know that there's probably a longer list, but I think let's let's discuss the main ones that people tend to um, suffer with. So the one hands down that everybody gets is dry skin and dry lips. And I would go as far to saying between 90 to 95% of people who take the medication will get that. And that's simply because the drug is working by drying up your oil-producing glands. So you do end up with dryness, particularly lip dryness. Other than that, there is the monitoring. And the monitoring is done because one of the less common side effects of the medication is potential for mild inflammation of the liver or increasing your cholesterol or the other fats in your blood, your triglycerides. So the reason that we do that monitoring is to look for that and to catch it early, theoretically, if it were to happen. Now, those types of side effects are reversible. So if that were to happen on somebody's blood test, all I would do is stop the drug, reinitiate it a couple of weeks later at a lower dose and everything would go back to normal again. We're not talking about permanent organ damage. So other than that, the tablet can make you sensitive to the sun. So it's important that you wear sunscreen if you're out and about. Quite honestly, as a dermatologist, I'd be telling everyone to wear sunscreen. So I don't see any behavior change there. The other thing that I tend to reassure people of is roaccutane or isotretinoin is used in all parts of the world, including hot places in Asia, Africa, South America. And those patients tolerate the drug fine, where it's way, way sunnier than it is here. So as long as we're sensible, that's not a massive issue. About 10% of people who take the medication can get muscle aches and joint pains. So lower back pain can be fairly common. If people do do a lot of exercise, they might notice that they're a little bit more achy afterwards. So there I always say, making sure you're stretching properly. So if you are strength training or weight training, you're balancing that with a little bit of yoga or Pilates or stretching as well, which is probably a good idea regardless. And then I think probably the other things are obviously the no pregnancy, which we've touched on, no laser, no waxing on any part of your body whilst you're on the drug, shaving, threading, plucking, or fine for hair removal. But the medication makes your skin fragile. So if you were going to wax or if you were going to do laser treatments, there is the potential to essentially rip away your skin or cause damage to the skin, which clearly we want to avoid. And then I think the biggest thing that we have to mention is mental health. That is probably the side effect that is most discussed on the internet and the one that people are most aware of. So with mental health, if you go away and you look the drug up, you will find lots and lots of stories where people will say, oh my goodness, that's that really strong drug that has the potential to cause anxiety, depression, other mental health issues, and is even linked with cases of suicide. If you look at all of the clinical trial data that we have on the medication over the last four decades, there is still no clear evidence that this drug causes mental health issues. One of the problems that we've got is that historically doctors, dermatologists, were really bad at recognizing that acne itself is related to high rates of anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and poor body image. And what a lot of the data does actually seem to show is if you improve people's skin, you improve their mood and you improve their confidence. All of the recent data that's come out over the last few years and all the big reviews also seem to actually agree with that as well. However, it is important to recognize that any drug has the potential to cause any side effect. So you will find that your dermatologist will ask you about mood mental health issues monthly. And I think if there was any concern, 
chances are people would say, actually, we need to have a conversation about this and we need to think about stopping it. I think that's really important to discuss. And look, we'll, we'll cover each of those. And I think it's great to come back to the dryness because I know that that's something that, that is probably most common. But I think on the mental health issue, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's a bit of a chicken and egg. You know, I found that my acne was causing me to have anxiety and I was feeling very self-conscious. And for me personally, the isotretinoin journey was a really positive one. Um, I had wholly positive feedback results. We had a really great open line of communication the whole time. We fed back exactly how I was feeling. And we'll come on to that later in terms of communication because I think that's really important. But from from a, a patient perspective, I would say the most crucial thing is being really in control of your symptoms. So I found things like journaling really helpful because if anything started to look a bit funny or I wasn't quite feeling how I normally felt for, for a for a consecutive period of time, I think that would have been really easily flagged to me. So I think it is important to be aware of that and to be really self kind of monitoring on, on those symptoms because that can really help. But I also think that um, the role of the dermatologist is there to support you with the process, right? You were there to support me throughout. You were there with the questions, making sure I was okay. And I think learning to have that communication is probably really crucial to that mental health issue staying in check. I agree. And I think there's a, there's a couple of things there. It's firstly trusting the person that is treating you and being able to feel like you can actually talk to them. And if something isn't right, then you're able to say so. Because I think problems happen if things aren't discussed properly. Other than the trust with your doctor, it's absolutely right. It's, it's the open lines of communication and self-awareness and maybe friends and family also keeping an eye on you and letting them know that you're starting this medication is everything okay? Do they feel like your behavior might be slightly different? I mean, the truth is modern day life is stressful. You know, uh, work is stressful. Post-pandemic life is stressful. And I think sometimes human nature can be, it's much easier to blame the external thing. Oh my God, I've started this drug. than sometimes look within and go, is there a lot going on in my life at the moment that might be making me feel this way? Now that's not to undermine people that have had a bad experience with a drug in any way or form. You know, I am fully aware that some people are very clear that it has affected their mental health. And I'm not saying that it doesn't, but it's about being aware and kind of, I guess, trusting and keeping that communication going. Definitely, definitely. So let's go back to dryness then. Um, when I was on the drug from a personal perspective, and, I, and again, I'm coming at this whole podcast having done this process. So I think it's important to talk about my experience and then generally as well. But my perspective, I was on a low dose and we discussed this. And I think it would be great to hear the rationale behind that, because I do get asked about it a lot, but I opted to go on a low dose for a longer period of time. And that meant that my side effects were very, very minimal. I had a little bit of dryness in my lips. Uh, my scalp was probably the number one place where I got a little bit of dryness. But aside from that, I had very few side effects. Um, and I really found that the whole process was pretty straightforward. Um, when it comes to the dryness, what do you find really helps people i know that you can't be super affiliated to certain products but i know that you you tend to give a broad spectrum of stuff that can really help people that's right um and you know interesting about the, the low dose versus high dose it's all about getting to a target dose so if you imagine you've got to get to a certain magic number you can either have lots of the medication you'll get to that magic number quickly or you can have a smaller amount of the medication and it will take a little bit longer to get there but the side effects of isotretinoin are dose dependent. So the higher the dose you're on, the more likely you are to have side effects. So for you, because you were on a lower dose, your main side effects were 
kind of dryness, but probably none of the other things that we had kind of listed right at the beginning. With regards to skincare for dryness, now I, I'm currently like, I don't work with any brands or anything like that. So if I do shout a few things out, it's just because, you know, they're things I happen to recommend in clinic. But as a general rule, the kinds of things I would say is you are looking to treat your skin as though it is very sensitive and very fragile. So what you want to be doing is you want to be using products that are ideally fragrance-free and ideally also very moisturizing. So they've got ingredients like glycerin or ceramides in them. You may want to use a cream cleanser rather than a foaming cleanser to wash your face so you're not overly stripping your skin. So those are kind of general things that you can follow. You don't want to be using skincare that's got lots of active ingredients in it. So stuff that people that are acne prone love to use. So your exfoliating acids, your retinols, your benzoyl peroxides, your niacinamides. You've got to stop doing all of that whilst you are on the medication. The same thing with like scrubs and exfoliators and cleansing devices like a Clarisonic or a Foreo, whatever it might be. You have to stay away from that as well. You don't want to be physically abrading the skin which is already dry, sensitive, and fragile. But I always say with people that have taken isotretinoin, you become a real pro at lip balms and also skincare products for managing dry, sensitive skin. And I often have patients now say to me, oh, by the way, have you tried this one? This is a really good product. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. I personally, like I went down the route, and there are other brands, but I went down the route of using La Roche-Posay yeah. and I've continued to use it post-Accutane because I've just found it to be brilliant and yeah. really for my skin right now, exactly what I need. Yeah. Um, the, just going back to something you touched on there in terms of a cream cleanser, mm. Um can you talk about just a couple of options that people might be able to go to and a couple of options for really good moisturizers? I know that you can't affiliate yourself, but I know yep. that people will be sitting there going, which one should I go for? Yeah. So just a couple of different options. No, absolutely. So one of the ones that I like, and again, all the products I recommend, I'm not working for any of these brands up front, but the CeraVe Hydrating Cream to Foam Cleanser. I really like that one. Uh, the reason I like it and I recommend it in clinic is because it's full of ceramides, which are good at repairing the skin barrier. It's a cream cleanser, which means it's not going to overly strip your skin, but it will foam a little bit, which means that it will remove dirt and sweat and pollution and sunscreen and grime and makeup that we probably have got on our skin. So that's one that I do like. I do like La Roche-Posay's Telerian Softening Foaming Gel Cleanser. Again, not containing any drying alcohols or fragrances. I know it's tolerated really well. So those two are probably my go-tos that I recommend in clinic. And then moisturizer-wise, I've got a whole load of them that I like, but the La Roche-Posay Epiclar H and Telerian Sensitive Cream Moisturizer, I think they're both very, very good. They are actually formulated for people that are on acne-prone medication that's drying them out, so they're useful in that sense. I do also like the CeraVe one for dry skin, the one that comes in the, the pot, which is like a, a blue and white tub. I think that's particularly good as well. But generally, I just think we don't need to be spending an absolute fortune on cleansers and moisture. Exactly. They need to be basic and they just need to not contain a ton of active ingredients in them. Exactly. And I think that was the biggest thing for me. I came to you having spent so much money on like every skincare product going. It was quite refreshing to suddenly be like, oh, I'm spending 
16 pounds on a moisturizer yeah which I guess is still not super cheap but it's but it's much less expensive than what I was thinking was good for my skin um can we come back to the low dose for longer subject just because I just want to cover one more thing here um obviously that was something that we were able to communicate and do really effectively because I was coming to see you as a private patient um is this possible on the NHS? And, and unfortunately, I don't think it is. And if that's the case, can you maybe explain why that is? Yeah, so it is much harder on the NHS is the honest answer. And I'm saying that as somebody who has been an NHS consultant as well. And I've done a lot of years in the NHS working and practicing. And it's simply because if you look at the numbers, about 80% of the population will suffer with acne at some point in time. So it is one of the most common dermatological conditions that will exist. We have a publicly funded health system um, and there are a lot of pressures on that health system. And with female patients in particular, you have to see patients monthly because that is currently what the professional guidelines recommend. If you have got somebody on a lower dose for longer, that means that they will potentially need monthly appointments for 12 months in the NHS. And if you then have Roaccutane patients coming in monthly, that's an appointment then that doesn't go to a patient that may have, say, skin cancer or to some other skin condition. So a lot of it is about resources. So that is the honest answer. It's about resources. And that is why low dose for longer is it's not really that possible in the NHS. Understood. And I think that's really good to cover that because it's good to understand the rationale and as much as I guess it's not ideal, it's good to know why that's the case. Um, a lot of people who messaged me were wondering if there was a best time to start taking Roaccutane. For example, I started taking one in the winter and that was really helpful because I didn't have to worry so much about the sun. Um, but as you said, people take it in hot countries too. But when it comes to best times, I'm thinking, is there a best age to start taking it? Is there a best kind of point in the year? When do you advise people really get going with their treatment? So I think this is a good question because I think there's so many different ways you can answer it. But let's talk about seasons first. So there are pros and cons to everything, including summer versus winter. And for most people, the course is six months, so you'll span across seasons anyway. But although in the winter you don't have to worry about the sun, you do have to worry about the cold weather and the central heating, and then your skin getting dry because of cold weather and central heating and hot baths and hot showers, which you don't have to worry about in the summer. So I do think dryness is worse for the patients that take it in the winter months. And then in the summer, there is that issue of sun sensitivity. We had a super hot summer last year, you know, with all the best will in the world, it was hard to avoid getting sunlight. So there's a risk of sunburn in the summer that you don't have to face. So I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I think it comes down on just basic clinical need of when the right time seasonally would be to do it, if that makes sense. Now, the other thing I would say is kind of when is the best time in a person's life to take it? I think the first thing is you need to be guided by, again, all the reasons why somebody would need it. If I've got a 13-year-old with severe cystic acne and acne scarring, I would prescribe it to a 13-year-old. If I have got a woman who has gone through the menopause, is taking HRT, and their HRT contains progesterone and is driving acne, I would give it to that 55, 60-year-old woman as well. So I think there it's clinical need. But the group of women that I find super interesting that I often end up having a long conversation with is women that are aged somewhere around 30 to 35. And for them, it's because pregnancy may or may not be on the radar. And you cannot take this medication 
whilst you're trying to conceive or whilst you're pregnant, the medication itself, you should not try and conceive for a minimum of one month after you stop taking the drug. I'm a bit paranoid. I make people wait three months, but manufacturer's advice is one month. So if I've got somebody that's planning on pregnancy or trying to conceive in six to eight months time, you have to have the conversation with them of, actually, this may not be appropriate for you. How desperate are you to start then? Or would you be willing to put it off for another 12 months? And that's where the conversation about mental health and impacts comes in, because it's stressful trying to conceive. It's stressful having a baby. It's stressful trying to coordinate to a new life. So you have to then speak to the woman involved and say, well, how much is your skin bothering you? Because if it's actually affecting your mental health in such a way that you're struggling to cope, maybe you do need to get your skin sorted before you think about trying to conceive. And it's not vanity. It's about making sure that you're in a good place from the get-go. So that, I think, is quite important, is trying to figure out what people's conception plans are, particularly for that age range. Absolutely. And that's really interesting to know about that window as well, because I think a lot of people who have contacted me have sort of said, oh, I'm thinking of doing it for my wedding, which is a very understandable process. And I, I know that people want to look their best. And if skin, if your skin is something you struggle with, I can understand why that might be a pivotal point that might make you sort of want to go down that route. However, what can often be closely associated to maybe that time of your life is also then going down the route of starting a family. And I think that's really important to understand that there are other options that are available that might potentially help you and maybe less efficient in terms of clearing the acne long term, I guess. And as we discussed earlier, talking about the efficacy of, of uh, isotretinoin. But I think it's good to know that there are other options. So if you are at that point in your life where you're thinking of starting a family, don't suddenly panic and go, I'm unhelpable. Yeah. Um, there are other options, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, that's where that openness with a person that you're talking to. I mean, sometimes people are like, I don't really know. If it happens, it happens. I'm not bothered. And then you have to then have that conversation of, okay, but if I said to you it couldn't happen, if we go down this route, how would you feel about that? So again, yeah. it's open dialogue. Really, really interesting. Quite a few people messaged about, is there anything that Accutane doesn't help with? So for example, I had questions from people who said that they actually have relatively clear skin on their face. However, they suffer with quite bad bacne uh, or acne on different parts of their body. Yeah. Obviously, I know the answer to this, but I think it's really good to understand um, whether that might be unhelpable with, with Accutane or whether it's something that kind of clears the whole body as well as the face. Yeah. So firstly, I mean, we tend to get acne in an area with, where we've got the highest density of oil glands. So face, neck, back, shoulders, chest, they are usually the places that we tend to see it. And most oral medications will help acne in multiple body areas. So be that isotretinoin, yes, it will help back acne, chest acne, even if the face is clear. And then there are sometimes other medications that we use. Off-label spironolactone is another one. That will also do the same. What I will say is often the back is a little bit slower to clear than the face. And it's because the skin on the back is a little bit thicker. It takes a little bit longer to respond. But absolutely, it will help body acne as well, even if the face is totally fine and there's not a spot. Now, say someone's gone through that journey of taking isotretinoin and um, like myself, they've come off uh, and they're now thinking about what are their options in terms of what their results might look like and also how they continue the results having an effect. Can you talk about kind of that journey coming off it and what you tend to recommend people do as a kind of aftercare procedure? Yeah. And again, this is something that's changed over the years. And that's because clinical data comes out and that data is really helpful. So our practice changes. 
So what I have now started doing, and started doing for a while actually, is I don't like people just to stop taking isotretinoin and then disappear off and then just go back to their regular skincare routine. I think it's really important that people who are acne prone have maintenance treatment. So phase one, getting the acne switched off, that's your course of isotretinoin. But then phase two is your maintenance phase where I like to put people on a cream version of isotretinoin. So essentially what we're talking about is vitamin A creams, so retinoid creams. Now, these are slightly different to retinols that you could buy over the counter. We're still talking about prescription medication, but it's a cream rather than a tablet. And I like people to use this for a minimum of three months, but ideally for up to two years or longer. And the reason for that is the risk of relapse, so the likelihood of the acne coming back after you finish a course of isotretinoin, is highest in the first two years of finishing the medication. So in that two-year period of danger, I like people to make sure that they've got some kind of maintenance going on. Now, the additional bonus of being on a vitamin A cream, and this is not the reason why I prescribe it, it's clearly for the benefit of the acne maintenance, but a lot of people use vitamin A creams for anti-aging and boosting collagen. So this stuff you can use long-term for acne maintenance, evening out skin tone, and also boosting collagen in the skin. So it's kind of a win-win. And just in terms of side effects, I'm guessing it has far less side effects than the oral medication. That's exactly right. And it's simply because you're not taking it internally, you're just applying it locally to the skin. And really, when you start a prescription retinoid cream, you've got to be gentle with it because it can irritate the skin. So you build its use up slowly until your skin gets used to it. And here is where I kind of want to interject with a bit of a slightly asking you to put on a different hat question. Yeah. But I know that you have a nutrition qualification yeah. and I know that you have interest in this area as well. And I think one of the things that I really struggled with, and I said this to you when I came to see you, was... Angelie, I'm doing everything right. I'm eating really well. I'm sleeping really well. I feel like I'm using all the right products. I drink loads of water and I still have acne. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people post coming off Aracutane, they want to ensure that those results last. I wondered if you could talk about what we know in terms of the link between what we put into our mouth and what happens to our skin. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. And I think when you came to me, I said to you, this is not your lifestyle. You haven't given yourself this. But I think as humans, we like control, don't we? We like to be able to control all the things that we can. And I think yeah. that's, that's one of the things. And the majority of people that have acne, acne is a multifactorial condition. It's not one thing that causes it. If it was as simple as just cutting out dairy, I wouldn't have vegan patients. And I certainly have vegan patients with acne. But it's about hormones and genetics. And then the lifestyle factors have got a slightly smaller part to play. I'm not saying it's not important. And there are a few things that I do like people to, to do or not do. So one of those, for example, I don't like people taking whey protein. Um, there is data. It's mainly in men rather than women. And it is limited data. But it does suggest that whey protein, it's a massive, massive hit of, of cow's milk protein that you're getting in one go. It's not the same as having a little bit in your, your coffee or your porridge or a cup of tea or anything like that. So I prefer people to be taking plant-based proteins. The second thing that I really am like now actively telling people in clinic is I don't like people drinking oat milk. Everyone loves oat milk and loves cutting out dairy, but oat milk has got a very high glycemic index. It's very high in a sugar called maltose. It creates a massive blood glucose level spike. So there is data that shows that female adult acne can be related to high glycemic index foods. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have food with sugar in it, 
but it does mean that there are certain things that you're having that you think are healthier, but they're certainly not healthier. So if you want to have a plant-based milk, please go for unsweetened soy or almond milk rather than oat milk as your plant milk of choice. The third area that I think is quite important is some women that suffer with acne have got another underlying condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome. PCOS is super common. It's massively underdiagnosed. It affects about 8 to 10% of the female population. And in the context of PCOS, there is also a supplement that I think that women benefit from if you have that diagnosis. And that's a supplement called myo-inositol. And it should be taken at a dose of two grams in the morning, two grams in the evening, either as a powder or a tablet. But there is very good data that shows that myo-inositol can help skin, it can help hair, it can also help with insulin resistance and also improve egg quality in the context of PCOS. So those are the three things that I'm like, there's good data behind. Taking omega-3 supplements whilst you're on Roaccutane can reduce the side effects of dryness. So that's another one that I like to recommend. But other than that, there is no diet that's good for your skin. A diet that is good for your general health is the same one that's good for your skin. Really, really good to know because we are so overpromised some stuff on, so say for example, on TikTok, you know, this is the diet that's going to clear up your skin. You know, there's always this kind of real misinformation when it comes to um, what we put in our mouth and what that does to our skin. And I think it's really good to understand that there are certain things we can do, absolutely, but that they tend to be quite minimal versus just having a regular, normal, you know, healthy, balanced diet. And then just on that, and I think this is a really important point to hammer home is this kind of association with, as you just mentioned, you know, say I go out for like a pizza and I enjoy myself and then I suddenly think, oh God, is that going to upset my skin? Helping people to understand the correlation between having a healthy, balanced diet where their relationship with food is a positive one versus that feeling of blame and also then restriction that can come from limiting things because they feel they're causing their skin issues. I'm glad you brought that up, actually. And I think it's a massive issue. Um, and I don't think social media has helped that in any way as well. But I see a lot of people who are very scared of eating certain foods and they have often been taken advice from sources that may not be fantastic. And it's always the same thing. Apparently, you can fix every skin condition or every health problem by cutting out gluten and sugar and dairy. If only it was that simple. But the human body is so much more complex than that. But it drives so much fear around food. And it also drives restriction and potentially can tip people into issues with eating disorders as well. And that's certainly something that I have seen a lot of in clinic. And I think that if you are somebody who's prone to a little bit of health anxiety or there is a degree of body image issue as well, often the skin and the food and fitness, they all interplay with each other in terms of how much exercise is being done. How does one feel about their body shape? How do they feel about their skin? How much time or how many hours a day you're thinking about your skin or looking in the mirror going, what can I do to fix that? So I do think that we need to be really cautious about where we get our information from. And I think if there's any concern to anyone that's listening to this and they feel, oh my God, that sounds like me, it's really important that you actually get really proper professional advice here from a dietitian and maybe even a clinical psychologist who specializes in skin and body image. That's so good to, to, to understand as well, because I think, yeah, it's, it can be a huge issue. And I know for me, definitely, when I used to put up on Instagram that I was struggling with my skin, for example... I cannot tell you how many messages I had from people just saying, oh, just cut out dairy. You know, and I was someone who wasn't actually consuming dairy at the time. And it was like, this isn't, cutting dairy is doing nothing for me. 
And like, it's almost as though it's just synonymous with people thinking that doing that is, is the simple thing you need to do to clear up your skin. And I think as someone who was receiving that advice and finding, well, hang on a second, I still have bad skin. It can lead you down this rabbit hole of, well, I'll cut this out and then I'll cut this out and then I'll cut this out. And at some point you turn around and you think, I'm, I'm barely eating anything and my skin is still bad. Do you see what I mean? It can be such a, a vicious cycle. And I think the worrying thing is when you get to the point where you are restricting so heavily, that's clearly then not only is it going to make you feel good, your skin isn't getting any better. And that is really the point where actually you, you do need to go and speak to somebody what the best thing to do is. I wish there was some way that we could control the information that's getting out there to stop this happening in the first place. And I think that's why that, you know, I'm so keen to do this podcast with yourself and to get information out there that is actually really, you know, evidence-based because it is really hard to cut through the the noise online and to really know well what it what is actually good for my skin. And and when it comes to things like isotretinoin, what actually is the evidence saying? What does a professional actually say on the pros, the cons, the side effects, all of that sort of stuff. I think it's really important to have voices like your own really sort of helping, I guess, to cut through the, the very loud noise. We're almost at the end of today's chat. And I just wanted to ask you about two really important things. The first one being your new clinic, which I'm just so excited for you about. It's called Self London. I obviously mentioned it in your introduction. And I guess this is your first foray on your own to having your own full clinic. Um, what can patients expect from Self? And tell me a little bit about what encouraged you, I guess, to take that leap. Oh, thank you. I mean, I think the first thing is we have got two dermatologists, we've got a dietitian, and we have got a clinical psychologist. And I feel like self has come from a place of recognizing, and I think I touched on this earlier, but skin isn't something that we look at in isolation. It's got such an impact on body image and day to day and how we live and how we eat and how we feel. And I just feel like what's lacking is really good high level expert advice and advice that people can trust about how do we sort your skin out, but also how do we give you the tools for the rest of your life to eat properly, to manage your mental health, to make sure that you're not suffering with issues of body image, particularly in the kind of environment that we live in at the moment where we're being bombarded all the time with images of what good skin is supposed to look like and what a good body is supposed to look like. So I think our main focus is going to be acne and acne scarring, because unfortunately, 20% of people who suffer with acne will end up with long-term issues with their skin from a scarring perspective. But the main thing really is, I think, creating a space that is it's like skin for life. It's not just fixing you for a good skin day or a good skin week or a good skin month. It's about this is what you need to do and this is how you need to maintain longer term for positive mental health. So you look good and you feel good. Amazing. And I cannot wait to come and visit you there. And then I guess my last question is a slightly more difficult one. And it's one that I really felt that I had to ask because um, it's really relevant to the people that might be listening. And it's around affordability. Um, and I'm sitting here with the privilege of being able to having, you know, to go privately to see you for my treatment. But it genuinely breaks my heart. And I know I was only talking about you to, to you about this this week about knowing that there are so many people who who cannot afford to see people like yourself. And that's that's a challenge. And that's unfortunately the way that our healthcare system in this country is set up. What is your advice to anyone sort of going down the NHS route? And what would you suggest those people do to give themselves the best kind of setup to be able to get the treatment that they deserve? I think it's very difficult um, in the sense of you, you've highlighted what a lot of the issues are. And 
you know, whether or not we like to admit it, you know, dermatology and a lot of other healthcare services, we are running a two-tier service at the moment, but that's a separate political issue, debate, conversation that can be had. In terms of practical stuff, I think the key things here are if most people are suffering with their skin, usually the first port of call would be their NHS GP. And because of prescribing guidelines and protocols that currently exist in the NHS, chances are the things that you'll be offered with initially will be creams, tablet treatment to include things like oral antibiotics, as well as maybe the contraceptive pill if you're a female. Now, what I would say here is if you have done either or of those treatments, that's the point where it's not unreasonable to ask your GP for a referral to your NHS dermatology service, because by then you have tried a treatment or two treatments which haven't worked. I do not believe that people should be on antibiotics for long periods of time indefinitely. It's not good for your gut health. It's not good from a resistance point of view. So if you've done more than three months or so on oral antibiotics and they haven't worked or the acne has come back or recurred after them, those are good reasons to ask for a referral. The other reasons that are good to ask for a referral are if you are getting scarring. If your acne is leaving marks or indents, it immediately means that your acne, by definition of severity, should involve specialist inputs. The third reason I would say is if your acne is profoundly affecting your mental health. If you are literally unable to think about anything but your skin, it's stopping you from wanting to go out, it's affecting your dating life, it's affecting your relationships, your work, your employment, all of those types of prospects. That is also reasonable then to say, look, I need to go and see a specialist because of all of these reasons. So I think you need to be quite specific about, I've already tried this, I'm getting scarring, it's affecting my mental health. By the time you get to a dermatologist, most dermatologists, I think, again, you know, they're, they're quite sympathetic in this day and age, I would like to think, about the mental health impacts. So again, it's reiterating those points. It's about being very open, I think, here actually, about the kinds of impacts it's having on you. And I know sometimes people don't want to talk about or open up about mental health, but I think often that's the crux of that discussion to say, well, I can see now this is really bothering you and affecting your life. We have to think about something and think about something quickly. Yeah, that's such great advice. And it's really good that we can try and cover that aspect of things, because I know for a lot of people, that is the route that they're going down. And it's important to kind of straddle both sides. I'm going to finish up with just uh, a final question, which is what's coming up next for you? You've opened your clinic. You've written an amazing best-selling book. Um, what are your plans for the, for the year? ahead? Honestly, it's um, just getting into getting the clinic sorted, getting it up and running the way that we want to. Um, ultimately, I just want it to be a place where everybody feels welcome and everyone actually feels like they don't have to worry about their skin because that's what we're there for. Brilliant. Angela, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you on. It's so nice to see you again, not in a clinic setting. And uh, and thank you so much for all the advice that you've given. And I know that if anyone has any other questions, we'll put your social links and your website in the show notes so that people can go and find those um, and contact you through the clinic or, or through social media. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time. Insanity Group.